0: Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it is our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. How are you, E.C.?
1: Ready.
0: <laughs> Ooh, ready. I like that. Ready. We are, if folks haven't listened to the previous episode, I recommend perhaps stopping going back because this is a part tour, which isn't a word, mm-hmm. but this is a part tour of a conversation you're having around the concept and the label of organic obviously organic food being the the subject Mm -hmm. of this. And so we're going to talk about in this episode, a little bit gearing more towards research results, efficacy, regulations, the ever Mm -hmm. sexy, ever click idea of regulation. So that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. I'm going to ask you first, before we get into this episode, give us the two or three second or sentence teaser for what we talked about last episode and why we needed to start there before we got into this particular conversation
1: briefly laying the groundwork that some of these topics have a lot of different subtopics, some of which I can't opine on, you know, environmental from an ecological point of view and ethics, I can't really talk on that. But I think a big part of this organic discussion is the fear of pesticide hormonal antibiotic exposure. And so for that discussion, I think to really have some teeth for some people. I wanted to lay the groundwork of of what that looks like in terms of concepts and framework and how to think about headlines. And so we kind of dived into some topics like natural versus safe and past versus present to kind of take that apart a little bit. So I hope that sets the groundwork. And so now we're going to get into a little bit more of kind of what organic really means and what does the research say about whether or not it's better.
0: Quote unquote better. Okay. Let's start maybe with the, just the term itself, right? It's always fun to define terms or get a sense of where the terms came from. Can you give us a little bit of background on this idea of organic? Where did it start? Where did it begin? What was the point of it? All that stuff. Just kind of lay the ground, the groundwork there.
1: Yeah. The 1970s is really the beginning of our modern environmental era. It really could have started, I guess, 1966 with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. But 70s is really when we think about, you know, the environment coming to be as one of our concerns. And so that's when organic became a word related to farming. And it was because there were some concerns about conventional farming specifically to kind of monocropping, which are these huge areas of farmland devoted, devoted to a single crop that they use year after year with lots of fertilizers and pesticides to maximize yield. And so there's just concerns about what is this doing to the soil quality? What is this doing from an erosion point of view, water quality effects, you know, all the different species. And so organic practices started to become more popular by not using synthetic fertilizers or pesticides and rotating crops and using cover crops and composts. And so it was in 1990 when Congress passed the Organic Food Production Act, and they wanted to develop standards related to what it meant to be organic food production. And it wasn't until 2002 where the final rules and regulations were written and implemented relative to that. Mm -hmm. And so now we have this national organic program It's a federal program that develops and enforces the standards for organically produced agricultural products that are sold in the U.S. And I'm sure other countries, if they have this organic label, they're going to have a similar type of branch to do that.
0: Got it. Okay. So the organic program, that's part of the, at least again in the U.S., part of the USDA?
1: That's a really important nuance that I think Mm. gets lost a little bit. The organic label in the U.S. is developed and enforced by this National Organic Program, which is part of the Agricultural Marketing Services Branch of the USDA. Mm. The Marketing Services Branch, not the Better Health Branch. (laughs) So for the USDA.
0: Is there a a Better Health Branch? No,
1: no. (laughs) And that's sort of the whole point is that. For the USDA, organic is strictly a label related to how the food is grown. They're saying, okay, this food was grown according to certain standards. They're not saying it's healthier. And, you know, it really would be a conflict of interest for them to say it is healthier because 99% of their farmland by acreage is not organic you know, and the USDA's mission is, quote, promoting better agricultural production that better nourishes Americans, end quote. And they have missions related to kind of nutrition and food safety. They really can't say that like, hey, we have all this farmland, it's not good for human health. So the nuance here is that while many people have interpreted organic to be healthier, the USDA runs the organic program, and they don't have that opinion. And you see that in their reflection of how they talk about the National Organic Program. They describe, quote, organic agriculture as the application of a set of cultural, biological, and mechanical practices that support the cycling of on-farm resources, promote ecological balance, and conserve biodiversity, Mm. end quote. So, the intent is and was environmental. They don't declare that organic farming is healthier necessarily to humans and just to kind of close this out because you were saying or we were saying that the organic is a branch of the usda it it largely is there is going to be some overlap with our other organizations like the epa and the fda in terms of regulating which chemicals can be used and which hormones and antibiotics can be used and then who's kind of monitoring that and who's enforcing that and so those are really all of the organizations that are involved
0: Mm. That was really interesting definition, the the Mm. cultural, biological, mechanical practices. So that leads me to wonder what then, you know, with those as being part, you know, in the mix of what they consider organic, like what does organic actually mean? Like what, what is the word actually indicating when we see it on lettuce or whatever, whatever we see it on?
1: Yeah. As an overview, an organic certified farm is run with the intent to enhance soil and water quality, conserve wetlands, woodlands, and wildlife. And so what it means in terms of their growing practices is they weren't allowed to use any prohibited substances for at least the last three years before they harvest. They need to allow for certain soil fertility and crop practices related to tillage, rotations, cover crops. They're not allowed to use synthetic fertilizers and then for pest management, they're encouraged to use kind of physical, mechanical, or biological controls. This might be like physical barriers. This might be using people to do weeding instead of herbicides like I did on my farm in Montana. I forgot but
0: about that too.
1: I know. These, these
0: episodes are bringing back so many memories of early so many EC memories. that I forgot about. Yes, okay, sorry, not to interrupt. It's okay,
1: but... But when they're dealing with pesticides, the idea is let's not try to use a pesticide. Now, there are organic pesticides that are natural pesticides, as well as some synthetic pesticides that are allowed to be used once they get approved. But it's kind of this leaning towards attempt to use other things before pesticides. Also, organic farms cannot use sewage sludge irradiation or genetic engineering, which will have to be the subject of its own podcast. For animals, they're supposed to be given access to the outdoors. There's like, for example, cattle, they should have access to an entire grazing season and hormones and antibiotics cannot be used. And so when we see the word organic, it means that at least 95% of its ingredients were certified to be organic. And then made with organic means that up to 70% or at least 70%, I'm sorry, with certified organic content. So overall, it's under this lens of improving the environment and also animal welfare.
0: Got it. Okay. So we teased in in the beginning of this episode that at least partly what we're going to talk about is the research. And maybe now's a good time to start diving into the research, what it says, what you were able to find when you dove in.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it kind of had teased that Organic has all these components and I can't opine on all of them. But when people ask me about the what about organic and I'm taking it from the health perspective, it's sort of answering those, those two things that I said in the last episode, one, do organic crops or food have more nutrients in them? And then also what are the concerns related to exposures like pesticides, hormones, and antibiotics? So those are the two kind of competing interests that I see in the nutrition umbrella. Mm-hmm. And when I go to the independent research on organic it's underwhelming <laughs> it's inconclusive and i and i have to be honest i sort of expected that to be the case before looking at it you know when we talk about whether organic crops have more vitamins and minerals or better nutrients within it than conventional we have to remember that a lot of what let's say a plant a fruit or vegetable has in it is going to be a result of the soil it's growing on the weather how it was harvested, how it was stored even by the time it gets to you, such that even if we were looking at any nutrient, regardless of it's organic or conventional, we would expect a variation. We would expect a variation in vitamin A from all different carrots, from farm to farm and from season to season. So Mm -hmm. the idea that organic crops are always gonna be healthier from a nutrient composition, I thought it would be hard to prove, right? And then when we look at things like pesticides, hormones and antibiotics, that's really hard to get the answer that people want to, like, they want to know, is this causing cancer? Is this causing a cardiovascular disease, something long-term chronic disease? Well, of course, I think we've touched on this before. We can't do randomized controlled trials with humans where we purposely give them a dose and see what happens. That's unethical. And then, you know, trying to figure out what's the cumulative effect of all of these low-dose exposures, like, okay, well, I you know, played golf for this many years and was exposed to these pesticides and these golf courses when I was in my twenties. And then I used plastic for this many years on my foods. Like, you know, and I ate non-organic chicken for this many times. Like we, we can't do those studies to any true rigor. It's too much like the Truman show, as you said before, right? We can't make Mm -hmm. people live in this bubble to analyze all of the potential exposures for the length of time that we want them. And so this is where the studies that we have are kind of underwhelming and inconclusive. What happens is we either get these observational studies where people self report, yes, I eat organic or not, and then we see what happens to them in terms of their health. The problem of that is, of course, we have some confounding factors, hard to tell what's driving what with these observational studies. And then in these control trials that we do have, the much that they can control people not living in the Truman Show, it's something like, okay, for four weeks, we're going to give you 100 grams of organic carrots at dinner. We're not controlling the rest of your diet, and then we're going to see what happens. Well, Of course, we can't draw any conclusions off of that. Nothing significant is going to happen with, you know, organic carrots at dinner for four weeks in somebody's life. (laughs) So that's kind of setting the stage for the fact that, yes, I found two systematic review articles, one in 2012 by Smith Sprangler and others, and one in 2020 by Vigar and others. The links are in the show notes. And basically, the evidence does not quote suggest marked health benefits from consuming organic versus conventional foods and does not allow a definitive statement on the health benefits of organic dietary intake. That's coming from both of the articles. And and even that Vigar article points out what we talked about in the last podcast that like, yeah, we can see some presence of pesticide residues, but we really don't have any conclusive evidence that this is harming people to any significant degree. So basically, the data that we have to date isn't really convincing. And and for the reasons I mentioned, this is really gonna be hard to do regardless, that if Mm -hmm. organic is truly better than conventional, it's it's going to be hard to prove. And I did just wanna touch on those confounding factors from these observational studies, because I think this is a large factor in us looking at, okay, what happens to people when they say they eat organic? There's a lifestyle around people who eat organic. And again, the Vigar article, points that out but people who buy organic tend to be more health conscious they tend to eat more fruits and veggies they tend to be more physically active they tend to be a healthy weight and so when we find these association studies of people who you know eat organic and then they have a decreased risk of obesity it's like well is it because of a decreased exposure to pesticides or is it because they're eating more fruits and veggies and they're exercising? Mm-hmm. And so this is where it's going to be really hard to get anything concrete out of those studies because organic, like I said, it is truly a lifestyle with many components in it.
0: Got it. Okay. So the independent research is at best kind of underwhelming, right? And you've pointed out that it's also not in the best interest of let's say the, the government to say that conventional farming is dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think whether or not your stat is right or not, but 90% of the farming is yeah. not organic. And so yeah. they're not going to come out and say that it is by far healthier. But what about safety? Like what is the USDA? What is the EPA? All of these, these regulations, like what are they doing around safety and how is that related to this conversation around organics?
1: Yeah. I'm thankful we did the additives podcast. I think it lays mm. the groundwork for some of this stuff in terms of regulations, the US food industry is highly regulated and monitored and it's not perfect and it's still vulnerable, but I think there's more controls than people realize, which I hope is kind of what the additives podcast did. And I hope, you know, the supplement podcast did for, in terms of pharmaceutical drugs and what's Mm -hmm. not there for supplements. But basically the EPA or the FDA, depending on whether or not we're talking about pesticides, which would fall under EPA or antibiotics and hormones, which would fall under the FDA, set the maximal amount that's allowed to be left on the food. And so these acceptable levels are generally referred to as tolerances. Other countries will also call these maximum residue limits or MRLs. And I always like to remind people that, you know, people often think these levels should be set at zero. Remember, we've got cyanide and almonds. (laughs) You aren't afraid to eat (laughs) almonds, right? So we're exposed to things all the time where the dose makes it safe. And so chemicals are going to be the same thing. Now, with pesticides, hormones, and antibiotics, the MRL is this maximum amount. The tolerance is the maximum amount that's allowed to be left. And when they set that for pesticides, for example, this is where the additives podcast really comes into play. It's based on the toxicity of the pesticide. It's how much is applied and how often, how much is expected to be left on the food by the time it's, ex- you know, marketed and harvested and sent to the store. And they also don't just look at that single product. They look at where else would, would people be exposed to this pesticide maybe that's through drinking water maybe that's through residential exposure so they try to take a whole kind of comprehensive approach to where other exposure routes would be and they apply that safety factor of 100 just like we talked about in the additives pesticide where you know there's a certain dose right before there's a problem from an animal toxicity standpoint and they apply a safety factor of 100 to reduce that dose for what would be considered acceptable for humans and again you want more detail on that, go back to the Additives Podcast. So that's how they're going to go about looking at kind of what are these tolerances that are allowed to be left on foods. Now, hormones are going to be a little bit different because, of course, we naturally produce hormones. And so it's not that we would expect that there would be zero. That would be, you know, a target number, for example. And so the FDA still is very conservative here. They look at, okay, we don't want the food to contribute more than 1%. Of what somebody would naturally produce, so mm. it's still on this factor of a hundred essentially. But they don't take like pregnant women <laughs> as the example for like what estrogen can be in food, because that would be a very high level of estrogen relative to other human populations. Instead, they take the most conservative value, which would be you know pre-puberty boys, and they say, okay, well, we don't want food to contribute, let's say, more estrogens than what pre-puberty boys would at a level of one percent. So again, they're set very Conservative. And I think this is also just interesting to point out because I don't know if we said it in the this podcast, but when they're looking at things like hormone use or for growth promotants, and when they're looking at things like pesticides, of course, and even antibiotic use, they not just consider the toxicology for humans, they also do consider what the environmental impact is. And so this is even true for non organic crops. They're considering what the environmental impact will be from this regular application and use.
0: Mm. What about monitoring? and enforcement kind of, so that was kind of like the setting of expectations mm-hmm. or the setting of regulations. Yeah. What about the other end of it where, like, what does that look like as best you can tell?
1: Yeah, I mean, they put out the rules, who's following them, right? We've got some pretty extensive sampling and monitoring programs. And to be honest, I'm not sure I totally figured out the maze by the time that we're recording this. I mean, I've spent more time (laughs) trying to figure out all the different monitoring programs. So if you're wondering (laughs) where your tax dollars are going, I encourage you to look at some of these big agency organizations and look at some of the data that they're collecting. And it's it's pretty Mm. amazing. I mean, it's not just in pesticides and hormones. I mean, you can go to the CDC and look at antibiotic resistance. I mean, we're collecting a lot of data, Patrick. So related to this topic, you know, for the USDA, they run the U.S. National Residue Program. That's for meat, poultry, and eggs. So they're, that's where we're going to be monitoring antibiotics, hormones, and contaminants in those specific foods. That's the USDA doing that. The USDA is also running the Pesticide Data Program every year. That's, of course, specific to pesticides. In addition to that, we've got the FDA doing their own sampling on pesticide residues, and they focus a little bit more on domestic and imported goods, not just domestic Mm -hmm. as the USDA would do. And so we've got the USDA and FDA sampling. They're reporting their results to either the FDA or the EPA for enforcement. And so there's some pretty comprehensive interagency setup here. And of course, this doesn't even include what your own state might be doing in addition to this, right? Now, I don't want to go through all the examples. Like I said, I mean, we're collecting a lot of data. I do want to highlight a couple kind of in these different areas that I know people care about. So pesticides, for example, the USDA has this pesticide data program. They started in 1991. They do sampling Mm. every year. They do look at both domestic and imported, but this one skews more heavily towards domestic products. They especially target foods for infants and children because they know that that's more vulnerable populations. And in the 2019 report, because 2020 report's coming out this fall, about 98.7% sampled were found to be below that tolerance level or the MRL that we just described, which already has that safety factor built in it. And Mm -hmm. 42.5% of samples had no detectable residue. So like, you know, over 40% of samples didn't even have residue on it. And that's coming from over 9,700 samples from 10 different states. I will mention when they do sample these, they do do a 15 second water rinse, which is kind of what you would probably do at home, but they're not applying more and they're not doing this thorough, more thorough washing. So that's pretty good. I mean, virtually 99% of samples have less than what is set as the MRL or the tolerance. If we look at something more like the antibiotics, and this again falls under the USDA, their residue program for that. They found that the percent violations have been under 0.4% for the last four years, and that's in the last report that I looked at over 7,700 samples, which means they only had 21 violations out of all of those samples. Not that bad, right? And I think with antibiotics, something that's really interesting to bring up is antibiotics through food where we are overusing antibiotics the most. The Smith-Sprangler paper that I already just touched on, they really point out the inappropriate use of antibiotics in humans is the major cause of our antibiotic resistance, right? And even the CDC mm. reports that, you know, 30% of antibiotic prescriptions are not necessary. So sometimes, again, I wonder if we're kind of like so worried about antibiotic use in animals when it's like, hey, we need to cut down on all of the different prescriptions that we have for antibiotics, right? And then finally, just a touch on hormones, um, as the third area that people tend to care about a lot, and that's in this Polios, I guess that's how you say it, paper from 2020, again, in the show notes, this was really cool. They took data from another paper that was looking at how much hormones exist in food. And then they were like, okay, cool. Let's put together a sample diet that the USDA recommends and see how many hormones that we would get in that sample diet. And what they found was that the total hormones you'd be getting from your diet are less than 1% of what you would be naturally producing just where the FDA wants to set it. So there is a lot of monitoring going on. And what the monitoring suggests is that, We're doing pretty well in staying under these relatively conservative endpoints or metrics that we're trying to hit.
0: I think you touched on this at least a little bit today and a little bit in the additives episode that we've done and that you've mentioned a few times. And it's this is this perception, perhaps, again, who knows how much of it just happens and how much of it is intentional, but... The, these regulations that the government, that whatever, are like, they're just like, they don't know what they're talking about. And there's, there aren't any regulations and everything's dangerous. And like, can we just maybe just talk about that? Like, how did we get to a place where it feels like what we're being told is the opposite of what well, you just laid out, which, yeah. <laughs> which is like incredibly stringent? yeah um, Why is there a perception that somehow the opposite is true?
1: I do think, I mean, I was certainly there. So I, I like to think that I wasn't so you know, out in left field, but that you can get so down by following certain blogs and some mainstream postings that, gosh, it's just like, especially in the U.S. i S I'm assuming it's like this in other countries too, but I, you know, I can speak to our perspective. I feel like you get to this point. It's like, wow, every other country is doing this better than we are, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like we're just really bad at this and gosh, like we don't have any standards in place and we're just so terrible. And it's just not true. I mean, you know, like I said, about 1% of the pesticide samples are exceeding this level which already has a safety factor set at 100 safety fold from where we think there might be harm. What I want to point out about that as well is those samples that exceeded over half of them were imported products and mm. you know that's from the USDA report. The FDA report also found that most of its violations aren't imported products and my point here is isn't to slight other countries at all, at all. I think we all have our own, (laughs) our own issues and problems to continue to work on and get better. But it's just to give some sense that, you know, the systems and standards that we have in place are going relatively well. Are they perfect? No. Are other countries probably doing some things better than us? Yes. Do we probably do some things better than other places? Yeah. You know, and to add on to this, I think hormones is a big one because I know in Europe, for example, they don't allow hormones as growth promoters in their animals. And so I've gotten the question, you know, well why don't why don't we do what Europe does? Well, there's two things there. First of all, I came across a paper that found that hormone use on the black market was more of an issue in Europe, which brings up an interesting point. I'm not saying that to fearmonger people who are living in in, in Europe, you know, it's just to bring up this point of What does a full ban do? Do we end up creating another problem when we totally ban things that people want to Mm. use for their food production, right? And the other thing there is there are other countries, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, as well as some countries in Asia and South America and Africa that also have decided to allow certain amounts of of growth promoters in their meat production. So I just want to point out that the U.S. is not, you know, out in left field and everyone's in right field, (laughs) you know, that there are other people that are following this as well. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, our system is not is not perfect, but I think there's a lot of messaging that makes it appear like we're just so terrible. And I just wanted to kind of set some guidelines or information out there that, yeah, we have some stuff in place. And, it, and it's not just sort of fly by night standards. And it's not, I don't think, careless or haphazard. The last thing I will say, and just sort of to echo that is. Just to reiterate, they aren't perfect. You have to remember that the USDA, FDA, and EPA are huge. And and think about their scopes. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible to think about their scopes. By default, they're going to be bureaucratic and inefficient Mm -hmm. at times and slower moving at times and even wrong at times. But, like, their scope is go monitor all of the food in the U.S. (laughs) Go monitor all chemical use in the U.S. I mean... It's just so massive to even think about, right? And so it's just sort of, I love love the process that we have. We've got independent scientists doing their thing, probably at a much faster rate, more at the cutting edge, all of that stuff. We've got our government scientists that are highly qualified doing stuff, evolving the policy to try to be in lockstep with the science. And it's a messy process, but I'm also not sure that regulating food production for an entire country or the world would be anything but that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely true. Given all that, though, where might there be? I don't know if the the right word is gaps, but where might there be some gaps in what we know and what we do? And certainly even in what we as as consumers make decisions about?
1: Yeah, I think the continuing of long term right? How do do we know what's going to happen in 50 years? Well, we measure for 50 years plus, right? So Mm. all of this data that I said that we're collecting is pretty awesome that we're going to have some stuff in years and years to look back on and try to put the puzzle together. So that's awesome. And then these cumulative effects, like we set these individual tolerances for one pesticide at a time and one hormone at a time. How do we know what the effect is from all of them across a lifetime? And I don't know mm. that we have the ability to do that right now, but continuing to work on ways that we can establish what the cumulative effect is, I think is going to be, I think is really where kind of the next frontier is, so to speak, and, and where we can shore up the data even more. To help people feel better about the fact that we we have these gaps, I, I think it's easy to get caught in that doom and gloom cycle of news headlines or everything is terrible. but you know, I think we're at the best point that we ever have been. We have more tech capabilities than we had before. We have more ability to detect things at lower levels, better data analysis, more people looking at the problem ever before, cleaner air than ever before. And so we're actually at the best point that we have been, and it will continue to be that. We'll continue to be at the leading edge as we evolve.
0: Okay. Given all that, we've used a term, you used a term that I love, this idea of misapplied vigilance. Hmm. Towards the end of two episodes here, toward the end of your kind of deep dive on organic. Is this another instance of misapplied vigilance?
1: In some ways, I think it is. I do think it's overall as a general concept. I think it's good to reduce indiscriminate use disposal of chemicals. I think, Mm. yeah, like we've evolved in our understanding of human exposure, environmental exposure. And so generally, yeah, let's reduce chemical use. I think where we get a little tripped up when I say something like that is that people interpret none is better than any and natural is always better, which is not what I said. But, Mm -hmm. you know, pushing towards reduction in many ways is a good thing. So in light of our current understanding and current regulatory process and and, and monitoring, I I think we're doing a good job there. You know, I think we're doing a pretty conservative job related to health. and, And that's where... There may be some misapplied vigilance is that we're really hyper focused on some of these issues that I think have conservative controls on them. When I would say we have more obvious factors related to our health outcomes that it doesn't seem As a society, probably not necessarily our listeners, right? But as a society, we're not doing quite well. And those are those diet and lifestyle factors that I harp on all the time. I mean, when you look Mm. at cancer prevention from the American Cancer Society, when you look at chronic disease prevention from the CDC, what do they list? okay, we've got excessive alcohol use, we've got lack of physical activity, we've got poor nutrition, we've got tobacco use. These are the things that they list as how to prevent cancer and how to prevent chronic disease. And then of course, you know, you know, the statistics I cite all the time that 70% of people are overweight, 80% of people aren't eating enough fruits and veggies. It just makes me think of when I hear all this stuff about organic and pesticide exposure, are we paying attention to the right stuff? You know, the generations before us arguably were exposed to way higher levels of these chemicals, and our diet continues to get worse (laughs) than theirs, Mm -hmm. for sure. And so are we just kind of missing the forest for the trees? You know, we have all these advancements in treatments and disease detections, like I said, and our environmental exposure continues to be reduced. What would happen if we just got the basics right? And I know we talked about this yeah. in the opportunities cost episode, and, and but it's really why I spend so much time talking about fruits and veggies. I think we have a more clear and obvious path to better health now, regardless of what our data will tell us about low-dose environmental exposures in 50 to 100 years.
0: Well, that's another good reminder. and something that you do really well, and it's relevant and useful, which is just like the two... I don't know if they're two opposing truths, but two things that feel Mm. to be opposite can both be true, right? Mm. The idea, and you just kind of said is like we should limit to the degree that we can limit, and we're probably okay, yeah, (laughs) right. And just trying to hold those two opposing ideas in our heads, I think I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, is being inundated with things that feel contradictory. And so we kind of default to whichever one feels less scary. Mm. Or we we push against the one that does feel scary. Right. In this yeah. case it's well, organic has to be better because science is your know, because quote unquote chemicals, well, that's scary. So yes, organics win, right? Anyways, another good reminder from you. So, thank you about that. Last question, which I intentionally didn't ask first because <laughs> teaser, I don't know, teaser. Where are you on the scope of or the scale of like, here's how much organics I purchase, here's how much organics I eat? Where are you on the balance between conventional and organic?
1: Yeah, I know. Probably should have opened with it as a disclaimer, right? It's one of my biases. <laughs> I buy a good amount of organic, definitely not. I don't go out of my way to do all 100% organic. And, it, and my primary drivers are some of the ecology and animal wel- welfare issues, which really takes me into the areas that I'm not an expert on, right? And so I'm, I'm making yep. purchasing decisions on areas where I don't have as much awareness or knowledge. But I will say that like I, it's also influenced by where I am, what's available, what I'm going to cook that week. I don't know if I cook, yep. but you know what I mean? What am I going to eat that week? Um, what the price <laughs> is? All of that stuff, and I will say I skew organic, particular in things that I don't wash, which might sound lazy, but like salad greens, like that's an example of where I'm gonna buy organic because I, I don't wash them. But okay. then I definitely don't buy organic for things that are products, like I don't buy organic crackers or something like that. So <laughs> I also eat out a lot, which is not organic. So I'd probably say if I had to put a number on it somewhere in thirty to forty percent of what I eat is organic, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's a little bit more for those environmental aspects, yeah
0: got it all right my friend thank you very much that's part two of our conversation on organics if you liked it please do leave a rating or and or a review they do help new folks find the show and ec and i mostly ec but i'm always here we'll be back next week for another episode (laughs) of the consistency project
1: See here. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you as well for all the support, for the five-star ratings and the reviews, and for telling your friends or family about the podcast. That really does help the podcast grow. And if you want to get the most recent info from me and be up to date on all of my content, the best place for that is my email list. So you can subscribe at optimize.me/nutrition.com/email. I send out emails weekly-ish, <laughs> and that's also the best place to get your question in the queue for Quick Bites episodes. So again, that's optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and there's also a link in the show notes.